morning. So it is Advent. What, what do you picture? What comes to your mind when you think of Advent? Maybe we picture a, a, a sweet picture of a baby in a manger or nostalgic gatherings, things that make us feel good, right? The events surrounding Jesus' birth were anything but sweet. Uh, they were messy and dangerous, actually. Uh, but not just the immediate uh, events surrounding his birth, but also sort of the whole history that led to his birth was pretty messy. <laughs> Jesus' uh, family tree was kind of dysfunctional. <laughs> uh, and, and so that's interesting, and I think it puts a whole new meaning to the phrase, Jesus entered our mess. Uh, his, his own family was messy. If we look back through the generations, and I'm talking about the genealogy in Matthew 1. Now, James teed us up, if you were here last week, on reading that, Matthew 1. The, you know, it's the so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, you know, the stuff that we skip. <laughs> well, they're all scattered throughout Scripture, and they actually tell a story. It's actually God's way of connecting all the dots, the dots that go all the way back, Genesis 3, when God promised, I will give you an offspring that will crush the head of the enemy. God, was, God made sure that we could trace the line all the way to Christ. And so they do that. We see where Adam is traced to Noah, and Noah is traced to Abraham, and so on and so forth. And Matthew includes a genealogy here. And he does something unusual here. He includes women. It wasn't a usual thing to do in that day and age, to include women in a genealogy, but he doesn't. It says a couple of things about God's heart. One was that God, God's heart towards women, was that he desired to use them in incredibly, incredibly redemptive ways. It also points to the fact that he's saying, hey, look back, pay attention to their story. It's powerful, it's redemptive. It also points back to messy stories, which is another interesting thing about God's heart, that he seeks out and includes the messiest things in his redemptive story. So let's go there. <laughs> let's explore this story, these stories. Let's read first these first three verses of Matthew 1. They're printed for you in the bulletin. And then we'll look to Tamar as the first woman named in this genealogy. This is God's inerrant and infallible word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. So there we have it. We see Tamar right off the bat. She is named. So God is saying, pay attention to her story. Well, her story is found in Genesis 38. So let's flip over to there. It's also printed for you in the bulletin. I'm going to read the, the first. We'll, we'll explore the whole chapter, but I'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll take it in parts as we work our way through this story. Verses 1 through 11 of Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite 
whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called him, she called him Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shalah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your, wife, into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us in this journey through this story. Father, we ask that you would speak. You have indeed spoken already. You have given us the story. And you show us that you entered into the mess of this world. The mess of this human experience that we go through. So I pray that you would speak through me, a broken vessel. Saved by grace alone. Would you bless us, we pray. In the name of Christ. Amen. So we, uh, we come to a messy story, the story of lies and deception, sexual brokenness, the things that would have made a Hollywood movie make millions, and God put it here for us. Uh, so as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I was thinking back to just stories that I've heard over time. I recall the a conversation I had once, I was having lunch with a friend of mine, and we were talking about, uh, he was asking me about Story Church and about the tattoo interviews and those sorts of things that we've done. If you're new and you don't know what I'm talking about and you're scratching your head, just ask me later. I promise it'll that all make sense later. <laughs> but we were uh, talking about that, and I was telling him about it, and our server who was uh, coming by, we were sort of chatting with her, she started asking me, well, that's interesting, you do talk about tattoos, you do tattoo interviews, I mean about that and so I went on to explain uh, what that was about and it's really I I responded by saying it's this is about me learning how to listen me learning how to build relationships in the community and so she said well that sounds interesting Uh, and I said to her jokingly I said you see I'm a pastor but keep that on the down low (laughs) my friend and I laughed together and she laughed with me but then she said in a more serious tone I grew up in the church. It hasn't been a part of my life for a long time. See, I'm a single mom and I'm a bartender, so I'm not really the church-going type. So I responded by saying, well, it's the type Jesus would have most intentionally sought out and gone for. And so she proceeded to ask me more about story church and all those sorts of things, and I explained that what that's about, that it's about our learning to see our stories and how they are a part of a grander story of redemption. 
but we struggle with our own stories. We struggle to look at our stories and see the mess and the brokenness. We'd rather cover it up, to leave those parts unmentioned, or even worse, fool ourselves into not seeing it at all. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God intentionally seeks out the most messy, broken stories and weaves them into his grand story of redemption. So we have the story here of Tamar. Again, the story of lies and deception and brokenness, oppression even. But God put it here for us to explore. So let's do that. Let's work through this story together. And first we've got to look at where Judah came from. Because the chapter actually begins with where it says Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. So he left his family. Well, what had just happened before that? Chapter 37. That's where Judah came up with the idea to sell his younger brother Joseph into slavery. Remember that one? All the brothers wanted to plot to get rid of him somehow. He was the proud brother that had the, got the special coat from dad, right? And had the dream that everybody, all his brothers were going to be bowing down to him one day. And they thought, well, we got to get rid of this brother. He's just a problem. He's kind of annoying. Let's get rid of him. So Judah sees an opportunity to sell him to slave traders, right? Well, it seems to have perhaps sent Judah down a dark path after that decision. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes things that we do, decisions we make, just send us down a dark road. Perhaps like what Judah did. But he turns aside and he goes to the Canaanites. He leaves his family. And he starts another life in a sense. He has a family of his own among the Canaanites. He finds a wife and has three sons. And then Judah finds a wife for his eldest. And her name was Tamar. Now, we don't know the specifics about Judah's firstborn, Ur. But he was, it says here that he was wicked. So wicked that God decided to get rid of him. And so uh, Tamar is a widow times one. Uh, by the way, this is, the, this is just four generations removed from Abraham, you know, the, the man who's through whose family the whole world, all the nations were to be blessed. <laughs> well, just four generations down, we get to this. Now, in this case, uh, Judah seems to follow a commonly known custom of the day and one that God actually affirms, the Leveret marriage law where he offers his next-born son to Tamar. Now, it's, it's really important that we understand this leveret marriage law custom to understand what's going on in this story. So in those days, there really wasn't much of an opportunity for, uh, for going to college, to have a nice career, to build up a retirement fund, to have life insurance, all those sorts of things. So stability... In that day, stability then was really dependent on what you inherited, most often land or a, a, a trade of some kind that was handed down to you that, that still involved tools, land, opportunities like that. That was what your life depended on in that day. And for a woman, her stability was dependent on being married to a man who in inherited something like land or a trade of some kind. Her, and her retirement fund was having children, sons particularly, who would continue to inherit and provide for the family and care for her. 
So an, a, married, a, a woman who was unmarried in those days was in some ways destined for poverty. Perhaps even forced into terrible ways of supporting herself, even prostitution. You see, the Leverett marriage law protected families, protected the family line, protected the inheritance, but it also protected women. That was what it was meant for. So the word leveret comes from a Latin word, levere, which means husband's brother, brother-in-law. And so in this case, if a married man died, his unmarried brother would marry his wife and produce an heir for the dead brother so that that son would inherit the dead brother's inheritance and keep the land in the family. Now, remember that the oldest, the eldest son got the biggest inheritance, the biggest portion. That was the custom of the day. When the wife would still be able to have sons and have a family and have provision, she would be protected and cared for. Now, back to the story. So, Er is taken out. He's a wicked man. God takes him out. The next son in the line, Judah gave to her Onan. Now, Onan got to thinking, hmm, if I go through with my responsibility as a brother-in-law and I produce an heir for my dead brother, he's not going to be mine. He's going to get my older brother's inheritance that actually would come to me if I don't produce an heir for him. So... How can I give the perception that I'm honoring my commitment and being a good brother-in-law while still somehow figuring out how to not make this work? What can I do so that I still look like a good guy? You see what's in his heart? You see what he's doing? He's thinking about the fact that, well, if this, this, this son that I produce is not going to be mine, he's going to take the inheritance that I could get of, from my elder brother. So what can I do? Well... He went through all the things to produce a child with Tamar, except cut the process off short at the last minute, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Do you see what was in his heart? He was thinking about himself, thinking about what he wanted. And you see what's going on in the family. It's a broken, dysfunctional family. God saw what was in his heart, and he was taken out too. It was evil in God's sight. He was removed from the situation. But now we get to see what's in Judah's heart. Because you see, Judah begins to think, maybe this woman, Tamar, is the problem here. But he wants to show a good face again, right? He said, well, you know, my next son, Shelah, he's, he's not quite of age. But just go wait. Go back to your father's house. Live as a widow, and, and, and we'll let you know. We'll, we'll get in touch with you. All along to himself, he's saying, hey, what if my third son dies too? This woman's cursed or something. She's a problem. We've got to get her out of here. You see, he was either blind to the problem of his sons, or maybe he chose not to see the mess in his own family. Maybe his own mess, maybe Judah's own mess as a father to those sons who were wicked. <laughs> he chose not to or was blind to his own issues. And so he needed, he needed her to be the bad guy. 
He needed to believe that she was the problem. You see? So he could remain a good guy in the community. The other thing that he does not do is he does not give Tamar freedom to marry someone else. She was still bound by the Leverett marriage law to the third son. And so any marrying outside of that would have been adultery, which would have been essentially a death sentence for her. So you see the precarious situation that she's in. Judah holds the key to her very existence and uh, success in life or poverty if it is withheld. He holds that key and he withholds it from her. Doesn't give her his third son, but does not give her freedom to marry another. So think about that, what Tamar has been through here. You know, a surface reading of this this. This, past, this chapter as a whole would sort of see Tamar as well. She was, we'll see in a little bit, she was deceptive. She pretended to be a prostitute. All these things, like she's, man, she's kind of bad news, right? But get to see the heart of Judah, his family, and the dysfunction. So what has Tamar been through? She's twice widowed. Okay, think about that experience. But the men she was married to, the first one was wicked. Don't know how, don't know what that looked like. But it didn't sound good. The second one violated her by entering the marriage bed, but withholding the provision of children. Basically, enjoying the fun stuff, but abdicating the responsibility. Hmm. Then she was abandoned by the very family that was intended to, called to take care of her. Judah basically abandoned her. Said, go, go back home, figure it out. Figure out your own life. Good luck. So she was sent back to her father's house to live as a widow. But the community didn't know what was happening behind the scenes. Judah was with his sons and all of that. As far as the community knew, she was perhaps a cursed woman. Perhaps she was barren and therefore was probably viewed as an unwanted woman. She's been through a lot. But the story is not over. Let's continue. Let's pick up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his, to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the, his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given, uh, he had, she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you, give, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, and your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Tamar made a plan 
again, on the surface of this reading of that section, you think, well, gosh, she's a bad girl. She's deceptive, pretend to be a prostitute. All kinds of mess here. But what about her faithfulness to the family line? What about her intentionality to take care of the family line that Judah essentially apparently didn't, didn't care about that much? You know, the, the family line that, that God was intending to bless all the nations? That, that family, that promise? What about her faithfulness to that? Does it make what she did right? I don't suppose so. We're going to get to that, though. But what, all, what about, this is what would, would have been a big risk on her part to have gone out and tried this out, right? I mean, what if she's recognized? What if Judah sees her for who she is? This, this was a big risk. How did she know it was going to work? Unless she knew something about the heart of her father-in-law that he would have gone for an opportunity like this. Again, it says uh, more about Judah. That she knew that he would have gone for it. And that it would probably work. And that he probably wouldn't even have payment. <laughs> and so she said, give me a pledge. Something to hold on to until you send me payment <laughs> for these services. <laughs> and he, he leaves her a uh, 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 a signet, a cord, and a staff. Now, what was the signet? In that day, it was a, a way to mark uh, your identity onto things. It was sort of been like a roll that you would roll out onto a, a, like a stamp. You would stamp your mark of identity onto things, a seal, to seal things with your identity. Uh, some of the commentators say it was basically like he left her his wallet, his identity, his ID card. And so... The deed was done, she conceived, she changed clothes, and went back to her life as a widow, apparently telling no one. And then the next section there, verses 20 to 23, is, uh, I'll just, instead of reading, I'll just kind of recount what happens. Basically, it was Judah sending the, trying to send payment for the services and retrieve his, 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 his wallet, if you will. Uh, but he sends a friend, he sends Hira instead of uh, himself, he maybe didn't want to face the the music, maybe he was too embarrassed, and it does actually say that, that the, she was not, uh, Hira couldn't find her, she could not be found, and so he comes back to Judah and says, I can't find her, and he's like, well, you know what, just let her keep the thing, this is going to be too embarrassing if we really try to find her and figure out what's going on, so he just consigns himself to, well, this is done, put it in the past, it's over, but three months later, the action of the story rises. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So Tamar is found to be with child. And again, the community doesn't know anything except, well, she's, we know she's still betrothed to the, the third son of Judah as far as we know, but... Uh, haven't seen Shelah around, so uh, she's been a naughty girl. And Judah gets word, and he has no idea. But he's angry. So angry that he calls her to be burned. Stoning, I guess, would have been the proper thing, but I guess he just said, throw it all out, let's just burn her. You see how dark his heart has gotten? You know... He had to believe bad things about her, I think. Remember back to the blame shifting earlier that he did. 
He was blind to his own issues, blind to his son's issues, their problems, their wickedness. He, he either couldn't see it or chose not to see it and needed her to be the bad one. And so finally, yes, I knew it. I knew she was trouble. I knew she was bad. Now we get justice. Do you see what blame shifting can do to our own hearts, by the way? You ever notice how that can be so subtle and yet can take deep root? It can happen in big and small ways, but oftentimes it's subtle. But we are all doing it in some way to seek to, to justify ourselves by comparison. Well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done, done that if, if so-and-so hadn't have done this. Even last night, I found frustration welling up in my own heart. As I was looking over this sermon for this morning, and I heard in the next room my boys just causing all kinds of ruckus. And I found myself frustrated because I needed a quiet moment, darn it, to look over this. And in my heart, subtly, they, I was blaming my sons for me needing to take time to look over this. Do you see how subtle that can be? It can be this so subtle. Blame shifting takes root in our hearts and it can turn dark, just like it did with Judah. But we keep going. To the climactic moment of the story. Verse 25. After Judah has said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet, the cord, and the staff. So, she could have... Uh, at any moment during, during this three months have said something to the community. Like, oh, it, it was Judah. See, I got his stuff. It was Judah. Here it is, right here. Here's proof. You know, we, we don't know why she didn't do that, but it seems that she held on to her peace for this moment. Now, many of us would want to stop right here in the story and be like, yes, we celebrate that she stuck it to the man. She got him. But that would be to miss something even more foundational to, I think, the gospel itself in this story. Because I believe this is actually an amazing moment of grace to Judah. She could have at any moment named him to the community, but she kept quiet. Until the moment of being dragged out to be burned at the hands of the man whose family was to be a blessing to all the nations, remember? At his hands, she kept quiet until this moment. And then she sent a message directly to him. She doesn't see, it seems like she doesn't announce it to the world. She sends a message to him. Says, hey, by these things, by, by the owner of these things, I am pregnant. Please identify him. That was a big risk too, wasn't it? I mean, he, he could have denied it, I guess, and said, oh, she stole him. I don't know, she, I don't know how she got him. She got him, but she must have stolen him. It wasn't me. And sadly, in that day and age, his word probably would have been taken over hers. But then it's the turning point, the climactic moment. What would Judah do? How would he respond to this message? Verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shalah. saw himself 
He identified the things that saw his heart, maybe for the first time. He saw the blackness in his heart. He saw that he had been the source of hurt and oppression and destruction and declares, she's more righteous than I. And you see that he took ownership of way more than just the, the act of impregnating her. He took it all the way back to the source of the issue. He realized, I was never faithful to her by giving her my third son, Shelah. He saw his heart. I believe that this was Judah's moment of repentance and faith. Maybe uh, being born again, if you will. (laughs) Do you know why I think that? Because the next time we see Judah is in Genesis 44. He's back with his brothers. And they're in Egypt before Joseph, you know, the brother that was sold into slavery. And they're in front of him. They don't know him. They don't recognize him. They think he's a a powerful leader in Egypt who could take their life at any moment. And, And it's that moment where they discover that the other younger favorite brother, Benjamin, is in trouble. Because Joseph tested them by putting his favorite cup in Benjamin's bag. And he's caught. And he says, aha, I'm keeping him. And you know what Judah does? He volunteers to take his place. Seems he's a changed man. Seems that perhaps this was his moment of repentance and faith. I think Judah may have come to know the love of God by grace. Grace extended to him through Tamar. So just just three takeaways real briefly as we close. One. God cares about justice for the wrong, for the oppressed. Jeremiah 22, 16, he judged the cause of the poor and needy, and then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 1, 17, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Psalm 138, though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but keeps his distance from the proud. And then Luke 4, this is Jesus quoting Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, The scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We have the power to relieve the oppression of those who cannot help themselves. And we are, and we don't, we're missing something that is at the very heart of God. Do we care about mercy? Do we care about the cause of the poor and the oppressed? What does mercy look like in a relatively wealthy middle class community? I mean, we can, there's lots of opportunities nearby and in the surrounding area. But it could be just as simple as building a relationship with a single mom. Inviting her into a community to be included in. Maybe have hasp- hospitality, including her and your family, perhaps. Those who feel like outcast, social outcasts. Maybe someone who's been hurt. By religion. There's a lot of spiritual carnage out there. And there's a lot of folks who aren't interested in coming to us. But what if mercy 
And giving them justice meant going to them, building relationship with them. There's all kinds of ways we could do that. That's just one to think about in a community like ours. Now, to this point, society as a whole would say, amen. No one is opposed to justice, right? Unless we are the ones who are wrong. There's always two camps out there screaming at one another that their version of justice is the right version. All right, we see it all the time. Divided nation, divided politics, divide, everybody's saying we're, our version of justice is the right version. If, this is, if we just do this, the world would be set right. But the problem is no one takes the inward look. No one looks in and says, could I be the problem? The, the Times wrote to a handful of famous writers about a hundred years ago. One of those writers was G.K. Chesterton. And they wrote to them simply, this, all these writers, this question. What's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton replied simply, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. The world would say that people are generally all pretty good. This story says no. <laughs> All play some for, sort of blame-shifting game like Judah and are all unwilling to look inward and ask the question, is the problem in here? So the next takeaway point is the need for personal repentance. New birth, if you will. God must break in. Do, do we have a category for grace to be shown to the one who was oppressing to the Judas, do we have a category? Do we have space for that? God does. God does. Third, third takeaway. Almost done. God uses what is messy, broken, despised, foolish, oppressed, hurtful, painful. Go on and on. He uses those things to bring about blessing to the nations. He goes to the furthest out, messiest people, and weaves their story into his story of redemption. So what about your story? Do you believe it could be redeemed? Maybe you identify with Tamar. You've been hurt. Your story is a mess as a result. Maybe you've even found yourself doing other hurtful or messy things as a result. Do you believe God wants you? That he could take your story and weave redemption into it? Believe it. It's the kind of God that he is. It's what he does. Maybe you identify with Judah. Maybe you've been the one that has done the hurting. Maybe you've withheld justice or blame shifted, allowed yourself to be blind to the worst things about you. Do you believe that God wants to show you grace? It might hurt. Grace isn't niceness. Sometimes it's painful. I'm sure that moment for Judah was painful hard it was messy but grace will transform your life do you believe that God would weave your story into redemption <laughs> believe it he does he is in that business <laughs> see all of us in some way have both hurt people and have been hurt by people and ultimately ignoring the heart of God that would show grace to redeem our stories that's the heart of the gospel the story of Jesus' dysfunctional family. 
So this is Christmas. What have you done? I'm not going to sing John Lennon, don't worry. (laughs) But when you do all the fun stuff of the season and you feel all the nostalgic moments, remember that the roots of Christmas were rooted in the mess of our human experience. So don't run from the mess of your experience. Run to Jesus who enters in your mess, into your mess, to weave it all into his grand story of the redemption of all things so that his goodness, truth, and beauty might be on display. Father, you are a good father. Your love knows no bounds. You sent your son to enter into this mess, this brokenness that we live in, that we have caused, and you redeem it. I thank you for this story of Tamar and how you used her to bring grace and redemption to your story, to your people, to us today. May we be open to your redemptive work in our own lives, in our own stories. I pray for anyone who is here who may be wondering that very thing. Can my story be redeemed? Lord, would you enter in? Would you break in and show them that indeed your grace changes everything? We pray these things for your glory, for our good. In Christ's name, amen.